Welcome once again to Benchworld, a podcast designed to provide you with knowledge, experiences, tools, and ideas about venture capital, entrepreneurship, and finance. Interviews and conversations with top-notch global experts will take place every week, hosted by me, Hector Shibata, Director of Investments and Portfolio at AC Ventures, a global corporate venture capital fund an Associate Professor for Entrepreneurial Finance and Venture Capital. Don't forget to follow us for more content on Medium, LinkedIn and Twitter as ACB underscore BC. With no more to say, hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome everyone, thank you for being today. We have Brian Frank. He is the founder and general partner of FTW, a BC fund in the US. So thank you, Brian, for being today with us. It's a pleasure having you today. My pleasure, and it's an honor to speak to you all. No, thank you. So first of all, let's, let's get started with, with this fire chat. So first of all, why don't you tell us a little about yourself and your background? Sure. So um, as Hector mentioned, um, I started and I run FTW Ventures. We are a VC fund out of San Francisco, California, that focuses on the science and technology to transform the worldwide food system. And you probably can understand why we're focusing on this sector. It feeds every person on the planet. It's an $8 trillion industry. Uh, it is a cause and it, is a, it receives issues from the climate as we change the climate. Um, and it has huge impacts on human health and we waste a lot of food. So I would like to help solve all these problems through using science and technology to transform this massive industry. And how I got here was I had been an entrepreneur myself. I had been building startup businesses for 20 plus years. I had sold a number of my startups to very large corporations like Google and Twitter. And I realized my experience at bringing a company from zero to one was the same kind of talents that uh, other companies needed or needed help with when they were getting their business started. So I started advising a number of large venture capital firms here in Silicon Valley, as well as advising a number of small early stage startups and helping identify the right sources of capital, the right product strategy, how to go to market and the right partnerships for these firms. I started by doing that about five years ago um, it created a network for me to draw upon for founders that wanted me to participate in their financing rounds. So I started angel investing my own money. I was lucky enough, again, to have sold companies to Google. Um, I had exited venture-backed businesses, and it made myself and the investors very wealthy. And it allowed me to start putting small checks myself into these startups. Eventually, it turned into a full-time business. I couldn't just do this part-time. And so I basically took what was my angel investing thesis and converted it into this venture capital fund that I run now. Wow, no, that's amazing. That's interesting. So which one do you like better, Brian? Do you like better being an entrepreneur or a busy investor? Oh, they're, they're so very different like aspects of, of work. Um, when I was younger, I really liked building things. Um, I liked being the guy writing the code or you know, getting up in front of people and talking about our products or designing the products. Um, that gave me a lot of joy. But when I realized I had done this many times over, 
um, I realized I didn't want to be solely focused on one outcome or one product. And that's what really led me to venture capital. It allows me to satisfy a lot of different curiosities and learn a lot of different technologies or about different products or different ways we can solve problems in the food system. And so it allows me to go very, very wide. There's a, um, there's a, there's a uh, saying in venture capital, which is a mile wide, an inch deep. Whereas as an entrepreneur, you're miles deep, inch wide. And it really means how much in depth you need to go to do your work. And I really like what I do now um, and learning about a lot of new things. So for now, this is what I enjoy. But again, I, I love being an entrepreneur as well. Okay. And as a BC firm, how do you, how do you choose the best projects? What are the criteria that you take in order to select the best startups and the best entrepreneurs? Yeah, that's a really good question because everybody has their own different philosophy about how they choose the companies that they want to work with. Um, we at FTW, we are an early stage venture fund. So meaning we invest really, really early in the evolution of the business. Generally, a couple of people in a garage with an idea, maybe a first product, maybe an idea of what they want to do with it, uh, but not much else. There are obviously other venture capital firms that operate later on in the life cycle of a company. So because we're so early, the mo number one most important thing and the one thing that generates the highest potential for returns on my capital is a stellar team. I mean, that's what you're investing in. You're investing in people. Um, and so the first thing is, are these the type of people that I could see working with for 10 years? Because that's the life cycle of our fund and life cycle of most companies. It's about 10 years you have to look at. And so I want to be working with some of the smartest people in the sector that they're working in on really hard problems and people that have... Um, incredible knowledge about the sector that they're working in, so much so that those people would outshine any other competition, can move faster, um, can acquire customers better. So number one most important thing is team. The second thing we look for is we look for a big market opportunity. Um, if there's one thing you should take away from venture capital is that not all businesses should be taking venture capital because venture capital really looks for returns on companies that are valued at hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. And as we know, not every business in the world can get there. So part of the job of a venture capitalist is to find the companies that will be able to scale into a very large market, probably take a small percentage of that market, but it's a very large market opportunity that they have ahead of them. Now, ideally, that company takes a very large percentage of that market in the long run. But that's a very, very hard thing to judge the early, early stages where we, we invest. So team number one, market size number two. The third thing I always like to say is it has to be a real problem. A lot of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, and I, I hate to talk bad about my friends here in Silicon Valley, but they make up problems. They're not real problems. They are perceived problems that they think of as an entrepreneur. They've actually not gone out and looked at the market, talked to customers. Um, and you really have to identify something where people really want to pay you money to do that work. And so we talk about the problems have to be real. They have to have a customer base where you can get the dollar fairly easily. And it's something that can expand and expand over time as you get better at building your product and reaching out to those customers. So I would say those are the top three things. We have many more things we look for, but if a company comes to me and they have a great team with a huge market opportunity and are solving a really big problem in the world that has a lot of cash behind it, 
that's a pretty good business for us to get involved in. Okay. And are there any, are there any specific matters or any specific items that you look at for food related companies? Or it's basically yeah. the same things? Yeah, it's since we do the science and technology behind food, um, we are not necessarily purely dealing with food. So uh, food is a messy product, right? <laughs> There's a lot of waste. It's very hard to produce. It's very hard to distribute. It's perishable in a lot of times, you know, the, the stuff that some of the stuff that we work on. So there's a lot of challenges with dealing with food. But on the technology side, we look at every business just like any tech investor. You know, um, what is their unique advantage that, of the technology that they're building? Does it allow them to solve a problem better than anybody else in the world? Can it scale? Is it economical to produce? Meaning we don't have to put a ton of capital in it to get very little capital out. And do we see it transforming some aspect of the industry that is suffering right now or is in need of transformation? Let, let me give you an example. One of the areas that we heavily focus on is the idea that the world will need more protein in the world. We're going to 10 billion people on the planet by 2050. And the current ways that we produce protein through animal agriculture are not sustainable. They will not be able to feed that 10 billion people on the planet. In addition, obviously, animal agriculture has a disastrous effect on the environment as well. And so we are looking at new ways of producing protein. And so when we look at these things, can we produce protein in a manner that will ultimately reach a commodity price point? Because every person on the planet needs to be able to afford it. And today we have very few sources of that. We have soybean, for example, right? That's reached commodity price point that is in a lot of plant-based foods. We are now seeing yellow pea and chickpea and other kind of plant-based proteins come into that market as well. We are helping work on developing new proteins for that market. And we look at those companies and go, can you build that production methodology? Can you scale it up efficiently? And can you get the cost of goods down far enough so that we can put it in every product in the world? And again, that looks very much like a technology business from all the variables that we're looking at from that perspective. Okay, great. No, thank you. So obviously, as, as you look into startups, they are raising capital and they are looking for a very good and safe investors. What are the key steps that any successful startup need to do in order to raise capital? That's a great question. Um, I think the first thing is you need to map out the landscape of different investors, um, depending on the stage of your company. Um, it's very important to know who gives funds to startups at these different stages, from the very formative early stages of I have an idea, all the way to I'm selling tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars of product. There are different styles of investors. So let me go through some of those real quickly. At the very formative stages, you have the angel investors and what are typically called your friends and family. And now that doesn't mean you're calling up Uncle Hector or you know Aunt Cecilia and asking them for money. Maybe if they have a lot of money, you are. But it really means people that know you, that have worked with you in the past, that trust you as a person, that they give you money to work on your project. The other one is the angel investors. And these are people that... Um, go around the world and look for very early stage investments that they can give a little bit of money to, and they hope to watch this grow over many, many years. That's where I started as an angel investor. 
And the size checks that you generally get from there can be anywhere from 10,000 US dollars, upwards of 50 to 100,000 US dollars sometimes, and possibly even more depending on how wealthy the angel investor is. And I'm sure you've seen websites and services like AngelList, where you can actually go hunt for angels in your specific sector. This is the other tip I tell early stage founders. Always look for people that like your sector and understand what you're doing. If you're in health tech or you're in SaaS businesses or you're in industrial hardware, there are investors that specify that interest. And so you should try and sort out your investors from the people that wouldn't easily understand your business to the people that would immediately get your business and obviously focus your time and energy on those that would get it easier. So you've got the angel investors and the friends and family money. The next stage is obviously early stage venture capital like myself. There are a number of venture capital firms that focus on what are called pre-seed and seed stage startups, investing anywhere from $50,000 upwards of a couple million dollars at that stage. And then you graduate from there into more institutional investors, people that invest at series A, B, C. And as you grow there, there are also other players that start to show up like corporate venture. And I, I think we're gonna talk a little bit about corporate venture later on too. You see um, uh, sovereign wealth funds, people that run countries that are, have this capital that they're trying to invest to use and make returns for their government. Um, and so you start to see them show up at the later stages as well. And you see big banks and other people willing to invest capital as well in those later stage businesses. So I think, you know, the big thing is understand what stage you're at, understand who invests at that stage, and then select the investors that are most likely to get your mission, your type of company, and go after them, you know, more aggressively than the ones that are, you know, a little farther afield uh, of, your, of your expertise. And what are the commonalities and what are the differences about raising capital from individuals and institutional investors? Uh, that's a great question. And we deal with this issue every single day. Raising capital from individuals, they are, um, I, I guess I can put it a little more emotional than they are um, quantifiable, or let's say they're qualitative rather than quantitative. Um, they have to fall in love with a business, right? They have to like you. They have to like your mission. They are a little less valuation sensitive in most cases than your traditional venture investors. People like me, we look at your numbers very heavily and we try and figure out how we can make our returns depending on what size of exit you have. The individual investors are a little more, I wouldn't say loose, but they think about it as, are you gonna do something big? And do I really even care you know, what I'm investing at in terms of a valuation or a cap? I'll give you an example. We are currently looking at a deal right now where I believe the valuation and cap is way too high, but many individuals are like, doesn't bother us at all. We're happy to invest at that. That's not our reason for investing is trying to place a, a ceiling on what we think your valuation is right now. Whereas for my business model, and I have built a business model for my venture fund, these numbers look too high for the stage of company that we're looking at. So there are people that are falling in love with the business. They're willing to pay anything. I am more of a quantified investor where I look at the numbers and I judge, can I make my returns based on what I'm investing at and how much ownership I get? Okay, okay, that's, that's wonderful. That's very, very interesting. So we have already talked about individuals. We have already spoken 
about typical VC funds. Are there any, is there any difference between corporate VC funds? Absolutely. Um, do you mean differences between different corporate VC funds or between corporate and institutional venture capital? Between yeah, between institutional independent VC funds and corporate VCs. Oh, absolutely. Um, so we work with a number of large corporate VC funds here in America, and actually one that Hector and I know, AC Ventures, very well. Um, and uh, it is, the difference is um, on a couple different aspects. One is generally venture investors look at the purely the financial return. We are given money by our limited partners to invest for a financial return, and we want to return that money with profit to them. The corporate investors could be investing for returns, but more likely they're investing for more strategic reasons to the business that they represent. I think that's the number one biggest difference. Um, you have to understand the motivation for their investments. In a lot of cases, they are looking for the opportunity to work with uh, innovative entrepreneurs that are doing something that can accelerate or help their parent company. So we work very closely, for instance, with Kellogg's venture firm here in America. Kellogg's has invested in one of our protein companies with us. And the reason that they did that was not because they think they're going to make a billion dollars on it, um, because they'll probably not make a billion dollars on it. Um, and remember, Kellogg's is a multi-billion dollar business. So even if we make $100 million of this, it's very little movement on their you know, kind of uh, uh, bottom line in terms of Kellogg's. Why they invested was these entrepreneurs were doing something that may have huge beneficial value to Kellogg's and they wanted access to it. They wanted access to it before anybody else saw it. And so they get the benefit of having access to the entrepreneurs, the technology, the services, and they can use them to support their either larger businesses or grow new businesses within their ecosystem. Now that's a completely different reason for investing. Now, along with that, the economics of the investment are very different as well. So for example, when I make an investment, I am hoping that this company um, exits or sells itself for a large amount of money. I get a percentage of that return back to my fund that gets paid to me directly called carry. In most cases, the guy at Kellogg's or the guy at Kraft Heinz or the guy at these big corporate ventures, they're already making a salary. They're making a good salary that keeps them in a job. They're not worried so much about the carry. So they're not worried so much that there's a big exit. They're worried that this thing is transformative. So again, the, the incentives are slightly different for the, for the investment as well. Whereas I'm pushing to get this company to grow fast and exit so that I can make my returns. They're looking at it going, it strategically helps my business. I can grow my bottom line. I can do a lot of different things with the technology and services that this company has to offer. So how, what's the best way to approach a BC investor, a corporate BC investor? Oh, it's a great way to approach them. Well, the great way to, to get to any investor just in general is through a warm connection. Is someone in your network that can introduce you directly and speaks very highly of you. I always say, you know, everybody's two degrees away from someone in this world these days because we're an international society all connected. So you should be able to, as an entrepreneur, find a way to connect to any venture capitalist in the world. I mean, you now got me in your network. So, you know, you can reach out to me and ask me for a connection these days. So that's the number one way. The, the second way is try and be all the places that these people are looking for innovation. 
they tend to go to these demo days that are specifically around their sector of interest. And there's a number of these accelerators or groups that host demo opportunities. In our category, in food and agricultural technology, there's actually a bunch of groups here in the Bay Area that are basically innovation landing pads for corporations. One that we work with is called Plug and Play. And Plug and Play keeps a list of thousands of companies that when any corporate venture com company comes in or corporate venture arm comes in, they go, ah, I have a reference for three companies that do X, that make protein, for example, or that solve the food waste problem. And so there are specifically organizations that are helping connect up entrepreneurs and corporate venture arms. And so I would say, talk to those people, find those organizations in your discipline that will help you reach those people. And then finally, honestly, they all have websites, they all have email addresses, they all have ways of submitting business plans because they want you to find them too. Go to their websites, find out who runs their venture funds, reach out to those people cold, write a great email, you know, put a great presentation together because if you're really as stellar as uh, you think you are, or, or the companies that sell as they think they are, they'll get the attention of the right people at these corporations. Okay. So and, as, as you approach these type of investors as an entrepreneur, how do you prepare yourself? And what are the key items that you need to have in order to successfully conduct a capital raising process? That's a great question. So this is in general, not just for CVC, right? This is in, in, in the case of any venture meeting. So I think the first thing to have is obviously a really great presentation deck, right? Because that's going to be your visuals to tell your story. And it should be a story. It shouldn't be just a lot of numbers and, and you know, kind of uh, uh, a, a very sl uh, slapped together last minute kind of set of materials. It has to tell a story of a couple different things. It has to tell a story of who you are. It has to tell why you're doing what you're doing. So all venture capitalists love to see a mission that you were chosen or it's imperative that you work on this project or this business. I personally love to hear when there is a personal connection back to something in your life. Like there was a transformative moment in your life when you realized you needed to go solve this problem. The alternative side of that, the side I don't like to see is someone sees an opportunity to make money. So they're going to go after this business. I don't like people that chase money because they're likely not to stick with the problem if they run into hardships. And if anybody has run a startup business in the past in this group, you know, startup businesses, you're, you run into both good and bad situations. And so you need to be able to weather those ups and downs. So I like to see someone that is mission driven, that has a passion to do what they're doing, and they're not going to falter in the face of adversity. The other thing that you should say is not just who you are and why you're doing it, but why you? Why specifically are you chosen to do this one mission in life and build this business? Because we're looking for that unique knowledge or insight that you as an entrepreneur have that's gonna tell us you're going to be a great business. And then you have all of the basic materials of, of what you're building into what market, how you're going to sell it, how it's going to go to market, what you think your cost of goods are, how you're going to kind of market it to find new customers. All of those details obviously have to be there. What I would say again, from our perspective, and I, I know this, you know, is an MBA class, so you focus a lot on the financials of a business. In the early days, it's really, really hard to judge what your financial outcomes will be 
for the next two, three, five years. I don't even bother looking at five-year finance projections because that's like looking in a crystal ball. If I could do that, if I could project out accurately five years of, of financial you know, goals, I would be playing the stock market or I would be betting on you know, soccer matches or something like that. Like that, that's a skill no one has. But I'd like to know what you're planning to do for the next 18 to 24 months with the capital that I give you. So that's really important. How is that gonna turn from cash I give you into product work or into customer accounts and sales? And if you tell me, I think I have a way to make that repeatable and you present a good story, that's gonna go a long way. And then finally, I think the clincher for a lot of investors is if you actually have traction or sales. And so again, because I invest very early, most of my companies don't have any traction or sales or very limited. And so it's hard to judge if they're gonna be good at selling. But if you've already sold in and I can call your customers and I get good references from your customers, that goes a really long way because it shows you've taken the first steps and then all I have to bet on is of those three or five customers that you've already sold into, there's a hundred or a thousand or a million more of those people just like those people that you showed me. And so those are really good bets. When I can line all those things up, right? Um, then I can tell a business is kind of getting to where I can, I can put some money in and that will get them to, to the next stage. But again, this is all very dependent on what stage you are at your company. When you move from being an early stage company to a series A company, investors are looking for something very different. They're looking for what's called product market fit. So it's where you have shown that you can execute on a product that has a, a set of customers and that customer segment is large, but you just haven't expanded into it. And so when a venture capitalist gives you money at series A or above, they are saying to you, we think you've locked in on product market fit and now you just need to go sell, right? Or you need to distribute or need to get your product in market. And then there's one other phase past that, which is, now you've been selling in, now you're at series B, C, D, E, whatever. Now we have to bet that you're going to exit this company or take it to a public market like an IPO. And that's a different style of investing. And again, that becomes all financial and quant driven. How much are you making it for? How much are you selling it for? What's your margin? Can you, you know, either increase your margin or decrease your cost to increase margin, right? Like all the things that you would need to do at an operational style of business, it's a different evaluation metric than what I generally look for at my stage. That that makes sense, Hector? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It, it does it does make sense. So that you know, I, I have two questions in mind. The first one is, obviously, as an entrepreneur, you need to think about how much capital I'm going to be raising. And the second key question is, when do I raise capital? So how do you answer those two questions? Yeah, so how much capital you raise, um, the uh, rule of thumb in Silicon Valley is on any serious raise, which is seed stage and above, you're raising about 18 to 24 months of operating capital. Um, because you want to be operating for a long enough period of time that gives you the ability to build your product, test some of your hypothesis, get your first set of customers. And I can't foresee you doing that in under 12 to 18 months. And 18 to 24 months just gives you a little extra runway, right? What we call runway to, to get there. So you wanna build an operating plan for about 24 months. And then depending on the sector that you're in, and I, I give this advice to people in the hardware industry, 
because there's something that you should realize if you ever go into hardware, hardware, moving atoms are harder than moving bits. For all of you that like software businesses, you're in the easier businesses. For all of you that decide to go into hardware, hardware is much harder. It's right there in the name, hardware. And so I tell people always pad the amount of money you want to raise if you're building a hardware business because something's going to go wrong. Anywhere from 25 to 30% padding and stuff like that. Uh, I'll tell you one story. We had a, a company that I was looking at. They had produced all of their um, electronics in China and they were going to assemble them in the United States. And so they had someone build all these uh, uh, circuit boards. They put them on a boat from China to the US. All of the boards showed up bent, folded when they got off the boat. They couldn't use any of them. They had just wasted $2 million on one shipment. And then they had to go remake it. And so these are the things you just can't anticipate that you have to kind of like have a little bit of what we call fudge factor to help you with that. So 18 to 24 months of capital, build an operating plan. What talent do you need? What services are you going to need? You know, who do you need to kind of work with on the outside as partners? All those different things need to be kind of built into that plan. That's about how much money you raise. Now, the harder question is when to go raise money. The easiest answer to that question, Hector, to be honest with you, raise it when you don't need it. Because if you're desperate for money, it will come out in your venture pitch. <laughs> like if you're three months away from cash out, I will sniff that out and I will know that. And that's a bad situation to be in. But if you're like six months out and you're like, we're seeing really great traction, you know, we don't necessarily need the cash, but I could, you know, I should pad myself and have a little bit more in the bank. That's a great time to go out and raise. The other great time to go out and raise is when, you know, in my case, you've built a stellar team, you've got some insights that no one else has, and you're just looking for a little bit of capital to get started. And again, when I say a little bit of capital, it could be anywhere from $250,000 to anywhere upwards of a million, a million and a half if you're an early, early stage company. So it really depends again, stage wise, but it really depends on you taking a look and going like, when do I need the capital? And then back off of that many, many months. So you're never in a position of, um, you're never in a vulnerable position when raising capital. That's a hard place to be. Okay. And when do you choose between equity, pure equity, or let's say venture debt? Mm. Great question. I talk to my entrepreneurs about this almost every week. Um, equity is great when you have uh, the goal to build something and you have no revenue coming in the door or very little revenue. Because equity is, in that case, fairly cheap, right? You're going to give it to your investors. You're going to give it to your team. You're going to keep a little bit for some for yourself or your founder. Debt is perfect when you can service debt with revenue that's coming in or purchase orders that you have sitting on the table. And so there's a natural transition when I'm building a technology, I sold my equity, I have no revenue coming in, I'm gonna do all equity-based financing. When you get to that stage where you have product market fit, and let's say I have you know, $10 million in orders just sitting there waiting to be fulfilled, there's gonna be a whole lot of banks and debt providers that'll show up that'll be like, I will happily give you venture debt or a straight line of credit, right? Because I know you can service it. And by service it, I mean, pay it back within a year's time. And so I generally tend to tell my companies like long-term debt is not looked like a good, as a good thing. Short-term debt is looked at as a wonderful thing because it means you're selling product. You could service the debt. You don't have too high of an interest rate. You can get a great rate on those things. But there's a, there's a problem when you go to raise your next round of financing and you have a lot of debt sitting on the books, right? And so you don't want to be in that position. You want to be servicing that debt constantly and you have to be selling product 
or have purchase orders that you know you can turn into cash to service that. Okay. So what are, what are the key mistakes that typically entrepreneurs do as they raise capital? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I had, I had one other thing to say about debt too. Debt is also great for financing depreciating assets. So if you have to build a larger factory, if you have to buy equipment that's going to depreciate, venture and equity financing does not like funding those things. So again, it goes back to purchase orders or it goes back to sales. If you have sales, building a bigger factory or buying new equipment should be an easy process. You just need a little bit of extra cash to do it. Then debt's a great thing to do that with. Equity doesn't want to touch those things. Okay, so your other question, what are some of the mistakes that, that I see entrepreneurs make all the time? One is, um, and, and this is a real simple one, don't fabricate anything. Don't make any numbers up. Don't, uh, you know, kind of uh, try and be the smartest person in the room without having the real information. Uh, a good example is, you know, we often ask people about their market numbers, where they got their market numbers, how they derived them, what sources did they use to, to come up with those figures. And sometimes people wait, make up very wild statements and things like that. Like, you know, oh, I went to these people that are the number one, you know, makers of this product and they told me what the market was. And I'm like, well, that's really not justified. You really didn't do the work to figure out what the market is. You're trusting someone else's numbers. That doesn't give me much confidence in you. The other thing is, I don't expect every startup founder in front of me to know every single answer to every single question. It's okay for a founder to say, I don't know. What that immediately should be followed with is, I don't know, but I will find that out and get back to you. That's a great answer to me, right? Because startup businesses are hard. You can't have every little you know, variable figured out. But if I throw a question at you that you, know, you have not researched or you have not uh, stumbled upon, don't make anything up. Just say, I don't know. I will figure that out. I'll come back to you. And then do that. Obviously, in very short order, figure it out and come back to me because it may be something that's important to me to make a decision on this business. The other big mistake is a lot of people don't talk about themselves and their team. And like I said, if my number one thing that I'm looking for is a stellar team, I got to see that in the first five slides, right? Like, why you? Why your team? You know, those are the important variables that I'm looking for and people bury it. They put it at the very end or they don't even talk about it. And I have to kind of pull it out of them. I'm like, well, where did you go to school? Did you study this? Did you, was the last company you built, you know, were you experienced in what you're doing now? And, and like, you don't want to make any venture investor um, guess questions. Uh, I think the other way to say that is you want to go into any meeting anticipating the questions and having a slide or a talking point about that question. And so I always prep and practice with my entrepreneurs all the time. Like if I gave you a out of the way question, like, you know, what's your revenue projections for 2021? You should be able to pull up that slide and go to that slide, you know, very quickly. And that brings me to my final statement about what I think entrepreneurs do, do, do wrong, which is they treat a pitch or a presentation like it's standing on a stage talking to you. That's not what we want. We want a conversation. You know, we want to learn from you why you're doing your business. So if you're going through your slides one by one by one and you're talking at me, I'm not learning, right? I'm just listening and hearing what you're saying. But if we can have a dialogue, if you can tell me why you've done something and I can ask a question back and then you can tell me another answer and maybe you go to a different slide and go, oh, well, let me address that with the details that are on this slide. That's the kind of dialogue that investors want. They don't want to be presented to. 
right? That We all got that in, in, in grade school, in elementary school, right? Someone stood up at the board and talked at us, right? We're there because we want to partner with you as a founder. And so we need to learn a little bit more about you. And it's never going to be on those slides. So we always want to have that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I guess that, that's the best way in order to get to know each other, just uh, having a good chat. So exactly. what, would be your, yeah, what, would, what would be your final recommendation, you know, for uh, to entrepreneurs or to first-time investors? So to entrepreneurs, I say, you know what? People are going to keep telling you it's impossible. You can't do that. It's really, really hard. There's going to be a ton of roadblocks. The best entrepreneurs persevere, persevere, persevere. They keep going in the face of all adversity. And that's what you always want to see, be seen as. The best entrepreneurs are also um, insanely positive about where they're going. Now, not positive to the point of I am deluding myself or I, I am trying to create a new reality, right? Um, it's more that they're positive that they have some idea of where the world needs to go. And they want to bring other people along with them. And so that's the journey we want to hear as, as venture investors. For new investors, I, I think the, the key factor that I've learned, and by the way, I'm still learning. I'm still a new investor. I'll be a new investor probably for 20 years, right? You, 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 never, you never get to be an old investor until you retire, right? Until you're out on the golf courses, you know, that, that's when you're an old investor. Um, I think for new investors, it's be diligent about why you're doing what you're doing. And always remember you have two customers. One customer is your LPs, your investors, but your other customer is the founders. And you need to treat both of them equally. You're not there just to service the people with the money that want you to make them more money. You're there to make sure that you're a friend and a partner to those founders. And those things can sometimes be at odds, to be honest with you. And you have to make good decisions as a founder of why you're doing it and who you're servicing with, with the work that you're doing. Wow. Those are great recommendations. Thank you so much, Brian Frank, founder of FTW Ventures. Thank you for being today with us. Of course, my pleasure.